Greetings and salutations, one and all. Welcome to today's episode of Risk and Reels. I am your host, Jeffrey Wheatman, but you know that because otherwise you probably would not be here. So I am really, really excited to have my guest on today, um, Dr. Annabelle Ox. I got to give you props for the for the PhD. Um, Anna and I have known each other for five or six years. We worked together uh, at our former employer, uh, Gartner. Um, I was on the fluffy management side and Anna was on the side that actually was deeply technical and, and did all the cool research there. So say hello, Dr. Anna Belloc. Jeff is one of three people in the world that calls me doctor. Uh, one of the others is my mother. So yeah. <laughs> That does not surprise me because my parents would call me doctor if I was one as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, very cool to be here, Jeff. Uh, was awesome to work with you, Gartner, and it's awesome to work with you again. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So, um, so before we jump in, Anna, why don't you tell the folks out there what do you what are you doing these days? It's been a while since we worked together. I know we run into each other at conferences all over, but what are you doing now? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm one of the handful of analysts who left Gartner and kept their job. So actually my job is to like keep track of industry trends and uh, give people advice on what they ought to do about those trends. But I work for a vendor. So I am scoped fairly narrowly to the space of cloud and container security. Um, the vendor I work for is Sysdig. That's what we sell. Uh, but my job is like, it's very unusual because it's not really marketing um, and it's not really product, but I interact with almost all of the teams. Uh, like I help sales deliver like their messaging, I help marketing craft the messaging, I help product figure out what they should do next and so on. So it's very much like being an analyst who works for a vendor and uh, I love it, it's very cool. All right, good. How long have you been at Sysdig now? I've been here for just a little over two years. So as everyone knows, we always start out with a movie question. So our movie question for Anna is, um, Let's talk about some movies where the main character thought they knew what was going on, and it turns out they did not. I feel like there are a ton of those. Uh, the first place my mind went actually is like all the rom-coms because it's always like this contrived. <laughs> just ask, just ask, just ask. Um, but the one I'm going to have to say is the one you told me to watch because I am not, first of all, I'm not old enough to have watched this organically. And also I am not a Hitchcock fan because I think of him as like a horror, creepy, like weirdo. And I'm not into that. But Jeffrey had me watch North by Northwest because he said I'd like it. I don't know how he knew that, but I did like it. And that is very much like, it's kind of like a spy flick, right? Um, so there's an element of like, Ooh, those guys, these guys, and like the triple Asian thing, which by the way, I'm like Russian by heritage. And so that's a very popular theme in the, in that world as well. There's a bunch of triple quadruple Asian spy movies. Uh, but yeah, it's like, it's very tastefully done. I actually really enjoyed that. It's sort of like, it's not too much in your face. Um, and even this is my favorite thing about the movie. Even if you're like really smart and you figure out what's happening before you're supposed to figure out what's happening, it's still super enjoyable to watch it unfold. Yeah, I think I think that's a characteristic of a lot of older movies in that it doesn't actually matter if you figure it out as opposed to like The Sixth Sense, right? Where if you figure that out, it exactly. sort of blows the movie out of the water. And and the funny thing is, so my daughter, who is now 18, she has a, a capability to be able to figure out what the trigger, what the sort of twist is in a lot of movies. And it's actually super annoying. <laughs> we were watching, we were watching the sixth sense and we're about 40 minutes in and she goes, is he dead? And I went, <laughs> you suck. 
Yes, he's dead. How did you know that? And for those of you out there that want to tag this spoilers, the, the movie's 15 years old. Get over it already. Yeah, um, true. Um, yeah. In the same but, in the same vein, by the way, I love Christopher Nolan, but I hate Memento. Because, like, if you figure out Memento too soon, you're just bored. Like, you're just bored. <laughs> so, the, yeah. It's funny you say that because I've actually rewatched it a couple of times. And I feel like it's a different movie every time because you know how it ends. True. I don't know. I was bored. I, like, wanted it to be more intrigue. So, anyway, Hitchcock gets props for yeah. maintaining the intrigue, I guess. Yes, and and there the other the other one from him that is similar is thirty nine steps. I think it's thirty nine. Some numbers. I think it's thirty nine steps. So good. Okay. So so here's so here's mine. I'm I'm actually going to go an entirely different way. For me, the movie with the character that thinks they know what's going on is Life of Brian, right? The Monty Python <laughs> movie, also made also made before you were born. But the the, the I just love the way they took this multi-thousand-year-old story, and I'm, we're not obviously going to get religious or political, um, but he, they, they, he, they took this really old story that everyone knows, even if you're not a religious person and you're not a devout Christian, everyone knows the story of Jesus, and they flipped it on its head, and, and I don't want to ruin it, but you should, you should all watch, you should go watch both of, of these movies, but I just love Life of Brian because he, every, he keeps thinking he knows what's going on, and then it turns out he, he does not, and, and it ends with a, a, a great sing-along, uh, I'm just going to leave it at that, everyone should go and watch it, it. Is even if you don't hilarious. think you like Monty Python. Yes. Hilarious. Yeah. I, I think it's actually a little underrated. I think it comes off. Uh, I think everyone, everyone sees the Holy Grail as the Monty Python movie and don't get me wrong. Holy Grail is an amazing movie, but I just, Life of Brian, I think hits a little, little better for me. So, okay. So I think that's actually a great transition to talk about something that you and I have talked about numerous times. Uh, I remember we had an extensive conversation in the lobby of the Gaylord uh, back at, uh, at the Gartner Security Conference last year. Um, so you have a, a technical background. Uh, you have a doctorate in something that I don't even know how to talk about. Um, you work for a company that has a, a great solution, but it's deeply technical. So I think the challenge is how do you take those deeply technical things and actually turn that into something that a business person's going to care about, right? We know, and and you know, if you if you know if you look at the work Paul Proctor's done around uh you know odm right what do people what do business people care about money coming in money going out and if something goes sideways who's in trouble so how do you with an understanding that there's no perfect or right answer to these how do you in your job work with your product people to make sure that they're developing things that make sense how do you work with your salespeople? how do you work with your prospects and your customers so that you can take this really good, important technical thing that, that you guys do and turn that into something that you can go to a CEO with or a board, right? It's a, it's a hard problem to solve. Yeah, that is like a dissertation grade question. Uh, PhD was in computational quantum physics, by the way, for whatever that's worth. Okay. Uh, you could not sell that to a C-suite if you tried. <laughs> anyway, so I think uh, I'll start from the technical side. So. One of the ways you can do it is cheating, um, which is kind of, I mean, it's not really cheating, but I'm going to say it's cheating. Uh, when you do create something that is very technically sound and it appeals to the engineers um, and those engineers needed to do their jobs, they will just like find a way to buy it. 
Uh, that's actually how we made a bunch of our money. Like as a company, we started out creating a product that met a need that no other product met, and it was technically very sound. Um, and so the people who are building DevOps and DevSecOps, like over the course of the past, call it seven to 10 years, essentially thought of us as the first vendor that created security for Kubernetes, security for cloud native applications and, and, and the whole world. Um, and so to some extent, like when they tried to explain why they need money for this, the answer was like, listen, you wanted DevOps, we're building DevOps, pay for the DevOps, right? And that kind of like was enough, right? Um, now it's becoming a different challenge for us because we're kind of now a more a, a teenage company, I will say, we're not like a fully grown up company, uh, but we are now having to scale this story. And when you need to sell something more directly to the business or have like the leadership of technical teams defended to the business in like a, actually, why are we spending money on this and not something else? And that, then those questions become, especially in the tough economic times, uh, like choose between whatever that is and protecting us from phishing and ransomware. Now it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I can't just say DevOps, DevOps, DevOps and get money, right? So we are now having much more complex like business value conversations, like what would happen if, you know, you didn't spend this money. Like what would happen if you had to DIY this solution? What would happen if you went open source? Like what would happen if you just left the gap? Um, and that's exceedingly, it's much harder than just saying like pay for the innovation because innovation is cool. So I love that. And, and I think that's actually a great thread to pull, right? I, I'm a big believer in the whole concept of meet people where they are and then pull them toward where, where you want them to be. And I think you said you came for the DevOps, stay for the DevOps. And I think that's really, really powerful. Uh, you know, DevOps was, well, still is a very important thing, but it was a big buzzword for a while. And DevSecOps and a lot of our former colleagues uh, made some serious bones uh, on sort of building that, that uh, you know, DevSecOps model. So do you, do you find that you are in a position where you need to provide a story? So you have people that want to buy your product, right? That's clear. Otherwise, there's no business. But those people don't necessarily have dollars, pounds, euros, yen. They need to go to other people who don't understand why the solution is good. So do you find that you are providing stories for them to tell? Or are you okay? Yeah. Yeah. So, and I mean, so let's talk about I think... That. I'll actually start from uh, maybe a less pleasant bit. And it's that as like a former physicist engineer and GTP analyst, like you, you made the joke, fluffy management crap, right? Because like, even within Gartner, when we talk about the technical teams versus the more C-level advisory teams, like we joke that they cover fluffy management crap because engineers just don't respect that content, right? Like we think that, you know, really hard math and really sophisticated programming is like the most important and amazing thing in the world. And only like smart, only smart people can do that. And so whatever bu the business is doing is like bullshit, right? Um, the first step is to get those technical people to understand that's not the case. So like they exist and have jobs and have the opportunity to create cool tech because somebody is paying for it and somebody's paying for it because like somebody wants to buy it or, or it, it's, it's all business stuff, right? Like you need the business to have a right to exist. So even for me, like I had to go through this transformation of like, look at me, I know all the technical details of how this should be implemented to like, who cares, right? Like who cares? Um, and that's my, one of my biggest struggles with my teams now is like super technical companies, super brilliant engineers, super brilliant product managers. And they'll be like, here's our list of 68 features we're going to build because our customers asked. Customers also super technical, right? I'm like, guys, why? And they're like, well, the customers asked. I'm like, who asked? Like engineer number 36? I mean, you have to convince his boss to pay for this. 
So just because he wants it and you think it's important doesn't mean it's worth building from our business or their business perspective, right? Um, so I think that's the hardest part. Step one is just like getting people to respect each other's jobs and expertise and then actually coming to that conversation in good faith and not with any kind of like, oh, I know better than you do what's important or like you don't understand the technical stuff, so you're dumb. Um, and then once we have the conversation in good faith, we can make progress. And even then it's still hard, right? Because now we have to convert like technical kind of architecture details or technical metrics into business value, which is this nebulous, like, like how do I make bits into dollars, right? Like, I don't know. No one really knows. So you hit on a bunch of really, really good stuff there. I'm actually, I'm taking notes as, as we're talking. Um, the why. I think that's a question that we don't ask. There, there's a, a psychological construct called the, the rule of five plus or minus two. And essentially what it talks about is that humans can't maintain more than seven pieces of information in their head at any one time. And the flip side is if you have less than three things, people don't think it's important. Right. And, and I, I had a, a boss many, many years ago. And he said, if you ask why enough times, generally seven is the max, you actually get the answer. Why do you want to do this? Why do people think this is important? And I don't think enough people ask why. And, and I think that's a great, great point. So how do you, how do you get people to ask the right number of whys when they're technical, right? Because the first answer is probably good for them, but you have to ask multiple times to get to the actual business problem, right? So how do you, how do you coach people in having those, those conversations? Well, I don't know. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I'll tell you some of the things I've tried. So I think just getting people to think about their role in the org helps. Um, in a startup, it's easier, right? Because when you're in like a large corporate, like multi-thousand, like if you're at Gartner, right? There's like 15,000 employees or whatever. Like my job, whatever it is, even if I'm an analyst, is like a drop in the bucket. Like who, if I get fired tomorrow, who cares, right? Um, when you're in a startup, there's a little more equity, <laughs> uh, pun intended, for, for every single employer. Right? So if I'm an engineer and I'm building the product, like I'm not building that product because it's fun or because I'm going to get my diploma at the end or because like whatever, it's a paycheck. I'm probably building that product because I believe it's going to keep this company alive. Uh, and then hopefully that will result in like a lot of money through an IPO or, you know, whatever, just a very nice resume entry. So that connection from like, what am I doing for the business? I think is the first question you need to learn to answer. Um, and again, like technical people will resist this. Like, obviously I add value. I'm a really great engineer. Like, yes, obviously you add value. But if you think about how you add value, like that causes people to understand like, oh yeah, okay. Like I can add all the value in the world, but if the sales team sucks, like it doesn't matter because the value doesn't get converted into money. Right. Um, and that's, I think the second step is getting you to understand your role in these contexts of other people's roles, which is why like, I love that I'm super cross-functional because I've gotten to the point where I love all the roles. Like I don't ever want to do sales, but I like absolutely want to have an amazing sales team that is friends with me. Um, and I don't really want to do marketing, but I want to have an amazing marketing team that is friends with me. And I think if you get people in your org to understand like how those cogs turn and how they fit together, they start to appreciate that like they by themselves actually can't do very much. But you know, when we are together and we understand each other's value add, then it's much easier to then speak with the business and to reason about how the business should function and then what role you play. I hope that made sense. 
Yeah. So I, I love that. And, and I think it's, it's um, an underutilized capability, which is being able to put yourself in the, uh, in the shoes of the other people. I think it requires um, an empathy that I don't think a lot of technical people have, honestly, because they think what they do is really important and, and they should, but I think you, you, and of course I wrote it down wrong, but you talked about getting, having cross-functional value discussions, right? And, you know, I've shared before, and I think it's really important. I used to run a lot of workshops. And when I ran workshops, I would always give people different jobs, right? You're the CEO. Well, today you're the CFO. You're the CFO. Today you're the CTO. And it doesn't always go the way you want, but you know what always happens is you always hear, wow, I never thought about it that way. And, yep, and I yep. think that's really, really, um, really important. And and I, I love what you said too. Go ahead. I have a story about that, actually. It's mind-blowing. My first experience with this was way before I joined Gartner. So like my first foray into IT leadership was kind of accidental. I was in grad school and they needed a person to sit on the IT strategy council at the University of Michigan. And so they require somebody from each department, including like the graduate student body rep. So that was me. I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? Um, and I had no idea what I was in for. But literally what you do is you sit around this big table with all the other function leaders, right? So like the head of the hospital system is there and like the head of archives, like all these people who are very important. And you're literally rank prioritizing the budget. You're like, we have X million dollars to spend on IT. What are we going to spend it on? And literally you sit there and you get like a list of stuff and it's like Wi-Fi, like disaster recovery, blah, 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 blah. And every single person that's in charge of whatever function is like, oh, well, I absolutely need this. Like, this is the thing I need the most. And like watching the head of the hospitals argue with the head of the archives about what the most important IT thing is hilarious. You're like, I don't give a shit about the archives. Like the people are going to die, but it's not like, it's never that simple. Right. Because there's so many dependencies and so many like reasons why we do these things that I, like my mind was utterly blown. And then, then like the insult to injury is once it's over and we have like, we all agreed on the list, right. We hand it to the CIO and she kind of looks at it and she goes, okay, guys, like this is nice. But you did not, you did not put disaster recovery. There's no resilience in here because none of those functions care about the overall resilience of the university, right? So she had to sit there at like as the top executive and be like, yeah, like here's the backup system, like here's this, this, and the other thing. And I was just like, oh my god, like your jobs are really hard, guys. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no joke. No joke. Well, that's why I would say you I don't I don't wanna I don't wanna run stuff. I just wanna be the thought person, right? Um, so that's a, that's a great story. And I think it's actually a, a great lesson for, for folks that are out there. Um, everyone should think what they do is the most important, right? Otherwise, why would you do it? But there needs to be some mechanism to actually sort of have that, that conversation. And, and you talked about, about business, business recovery and, and, and resilience and DR and, that's a really big thing. And typically that falls under like a COO function and COOs often don't have a lot of insight into the, the, the technology piece. And I, I had a role years ago where I was asked to build a BC program and I didn't really have any background. So I went around to all the businesses and I took them the questionnaire that the consulting company gave me. And I said, so how important is this? How much data could you lose? How much time could you lose? And they would all say, oh, it's very important. We can't lose anything. And I went to our CFO and I went, okay, I need like $7 billion for DR. And I knew he was going to throw me out of the office. I didn't even close the door. And I went, oh, before I go, I need, you to do, I need you to sign this letter. And he said, what does the letter say? And I said, well, the letter says, I am working at your discretion and under your auspices and with your authority. And 
if you need above a normal level of recovery, you need to pay for it. And I took that around to all the business units and lo and behold, oh, well, I guess we could lose a week's worth of data. Or I guess if we were out for 10 days, it wouldn't be a problem. So, so I think that that's a really, really good uh, example. And I, I also want to backtrack a little because you talked about something that we always talk about at Black Kite, which is we need to sell on business value and not on a list of features and functions. And I think that is a huge challenge uh, because it's easy to list features and functions. And before before we started the recording, Anna and I were talking about a, a mutual friend who's actually been on Risk and Reels, uh, Evgeny Haram. And he and I are actually talking a lot about like how do we work both sides of a sales equation, right? How do you make sure the buyer is actually making their needs known and they're not asking for a list of functions and features? And then how do we get the salesperson to do that? And we're sort of calling it like the magic dance or, or something like that. But I think it's, it's really, really important. And I, I think, and, and this aligns with what was said, I think everyone needs to understand everyone else's role and responsibility, not at a detail level, but you need to understand what drives people. Why are they making the, the decisions that, that they're making? And I think that's a huge issue. Right? Yeah. And I think, by the way, your story is, is really awesome because I was going to say, if you can only choose one role that you have to understand besides your own, like choose the CFO. Right. Right. Because that person's accountable for the bottom line. And like, if you the engineer, you, the product manager, you, the thought leader, whoever you are, can't imagine why the CFO should want to pay for whatever it is that you're doing. Like yep. you're probably not really serving the business. Yeah. Well, one, one of our, our former colleagues uh, had what he called the Skoltz rule, where he said, if you want to talk about dollars, cents, pounds, euros, whatever, make sure you can defend your numbers in front of the CFO for five minutes. If you can't, you probably should not use that talk track. And, and I reference that all the time. And I think um, there we all speak different languages. I mean, even you and I who have cyber backgrounds, you and I have to kind of find a middle ground, right? Because if you talk to me about your PhD thesis, I would be like, that sounds super interesting. But I don't I wouldn't really know what you're what you're talking about. I will not and, although I probably I probably don't know anything you wouldn't know. Um, but that's not true. That's not true. That's the thing, right? Because I am coming from the tech side. So, and this is funny because I, my role now is uh, explicitly, it's almost like a, it's like CISO, dev, CISO relations kind of like, right? So my job is to talk to like higher level people about what is going on with all this cloud security nonsense, because there's a lot of new technical stuff that they don't necessarily know because they grew up in some other technical world, right? And now they have to make decisions about this and spend on this and, so, and governance of this. And they're like, I don't know what this is. Uh, so I'm supposed to deliver to them in their language, like some useful information about what to do. And I'm over here like, I don't know their language, like governance. I don't know anything right. about governance. Right? Okay. So I called Jeff and I'm like, Jeff, what are these words? And I'm going to use them like. <laughs> okay, that's that's fair. All right, I'll, I, I, I will accept that. Yeah, it's, I, I refer to governance as the G word because uh, no one's really interested in in, in talking about it. And uh, yeah, so I just I feel like there's there are so many opportunities to sort of foster better communication. And, and I think you know one of the sort of subtexts that I think I pulled away is we need to be more understanding of the fact that our audience doesn't really understand everything we're 
talking about, and we want to make sure they're comfortable asking questions, right? You don't ever want to be in a position where they won't, they don't understand something, but they won't tell you they don't understand because they don't want to be perceived as being dumb or ignorant. And they, they are never that. I mean, I remember a bunch of years ago, uh, I was working with, uh, CISO and he was not very well liked in his organization because everyone felt he talked down to them. So I was out with uh, the CFO and I said, so let me ask you a question. I work for a company, our competitor put out good numbers and our stock price went up. Why is that? And she explained to me and I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And she explained it again. I said, nope. And she started getting frustrated. And I said, I'm not justifying his behavior, but here's the problem. We're all coming at this from such different perspectives. It's hard to understand the other person and no one feels comfortable asking questions. So how do you get people to feel comfortable asking questions when they may think, well, I don't want this person, I don't want Adam to think I'm an idiot, right? How do you get them to ask those questions? Uh, how do you get them? I mean, you don't be a jerk about it. Uh, I actually think this is a leadership thing, right? Like you, you can't, I mean, if you're, actually, that's not true. If, if you're not very high up in an org, you can still foster this culture. Um, there's a couple of, like, very basic tactics you can use. Like, one thing I learned from, I want to say some psychology folks, is just ask, right? Like, I will start explaining something. I'll be like, hey, Jeff, like, here's how Kubernetes works. There's pods and clusters and whatever. I'm like, wait, do you, do you know this stuff? Like, is this something you're comfortable with? Um, or I'll go, you probably already know this, but... Like, blah, blah, blah. And then some, it gives somebody a chance to be like, no, actually, I don't know that. Or like, yeah, I do know that. Let's fast forward, right? So you kind of check in with people. So you get a sense of whether or not they are with you or not. Um, and you give them permission to ask, right? Or to say, yeah, I know this. Let's move on. So let me, I'm going to jump in there because what you just articulated is super, super important. Because you know what you didn't say? Does this make sense to you? Because <laughs> I, that is, I, t I coach our salespeople all the time. I'm like, if I ever hear you saying that, I'm coming up to Boston and I'm going to choke you until you turn blue because it's super, super insulting. But your, your questions are, you're asking that, but you're not doing it in an insulting, in an insulting sort of pedantic way. So I think that's a great, great lesson people take away. Don't ever say, does this make sense? Say, have you seen this before? Does this help you make better decisions? Does, th does this help you? you know, be better at your job. Is there any area where you'd like me to do a deeper dive? And I think those are great ways to put it. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that, that is such an important thing that people don't get to, right? Do, does this make sense? Do you understand this? Like yeah, how obnoxious a thing is that to say? And it seems so minor, but like, I think you, what I, what you do is you overcorrect for uh, assuming they're smarter than they are, right? <laughs> so you like, you give them that generosity up front and then you let them kind of tune you to the right, level. So I just assume everyone knows more than I do, which probably isn't true in a lot of cases. If I'm talking to you about Kubernetes, you probably don't know more than I do. And I'm going <laughs> to be like, sorry, Jeff, <laughs> but I'm going to be like, Hey, like, have you heard of this before? And then you might be like, I've heard of it, but I don't actually know anything about it. Right. And then I'm like, okay, great. Now I have license to like explain it. Um, whereas if you're like, yeah, I know, I'm not going to be like, well, let me explain it anyway, because obviously <laughs> I'm smarter than you. <laughs> Um, so just be generous and be gen assume they're smarter than they are. Um, and it's fine if you're faking it. Like they don't need to know that you think they're dumb. Just pretend that they're not dumb. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, and, and it's funny because I had uh, a situation with one of my kids many years ago where the teacher called us in and said, you know, she talks to people like they're dumb. And I sat her down and I said, let me tell you, honey, you may be the smartest person, you know, but you don't need to tell everyone. 
And she learned the lesson and, and was, and she's wildly successful. She's actually in grad school now. And, I, but I think, I think you, I think that's a, if people take nothing else away, that thing that you just said, assume people know more than you think they do. I think that's a great piece of guidance because it keeps you from talking down. Um, are you familiar with the work of Edward Tufte? Never seen any of his stuff. So, so he's a he's a visual communication guy and he does uh he does these road shows it's like a two-day training thing and he you get his books it's actually super cool and it's pretty inexpensive so if you ever see him you should check him out but he i went to him at a break and i said so i i talk to people about going in front of boards all the time and i said and the challenge that people have is the boards don't really understand and he said don't make that assumption he said if you assume they don't know, you may be giving you may not be giving them information that they need, and I think that's a really really important thing. And it's a hard lesson for me to to learn because you know oh, I've been doing this a long time and I got two thumbs and I'm Jeffrey. I, you you know who I am, and that's the stuff that goes on in all, I think all of our heads. And unfortunately, it's a cultural thing at uh, our former employer. But I think it's a really really important uh, sort of piece of guidance, right? Don't, don't assume what your audience knows and let them pull you. And, and I think that's really, really important. So, all right. Um, so I know we, we talked a little bit before uh, the recording went live and we have a couple minutes left. So we talked about all this communication stuff. So metrics, right? It was a, a huge topic I covered at, at Gartner and I know the GTP folks did a lot of it. So Let's spend a couple of minutes kind of wrapping up. How do you how do you take all these things and actually transform them into metrics and reporting that are relevant to the right audience, right? How do you come up with numbers and metrics and measures that are going to drive action? I wanted to say carefully, but I think actually that might get you into more trouble than being less careful about it. Um, the... Tech, the more technically minded among us want to be very rigorous and precise. Uh, and that is sometimes a waste of time, right? Because you ultimately need to report something that's sufficiently aggregated or sufficiently like actionable to a leader, right? And so reporting something like the number of vulnerabilities you patched this week is, is really not useful. Um, so it may be very correct and precise, but it's not useful. So I think that's what you have to think. Like, regardless of whether you're like up at the top layer of the org and you're mandating, you know, OKRs and metrics downward, or you're more like in the mid-tier uh, leadership org and you're saying like, hey, this is what my part of the company is going to report on. You really need to think about whether the thing you're counting uh, is actionable and useful. Okay. Yeah, I, I like that. And I think you, you hit on something critical there, which is that accuracy and precision while they may be good for us as cyber people, as IT people, as technical people, is generally not super important for business audiences. I, I used to review a lot of risk reporting platforms, and I always used to tell people, like, you're, you're reporting to two decimal places. Nobody believes you because <laughs> the CFO doesn't get that level of detail, <laughs> right? And when you do that, you're implying a level of precision and accuracy, which is not there. But more to the point... If I'm at a 4.35, am I going to do something different than I'm at a 4.41? And the answer is probably not. Exactly. And, exactly. and I think that's a really, really important thing. And I think particularly in what you guys do at Sysdig and to a certain extent, what we do at Black Kite, 
you're trying to drive people to make better risk-based decisions and risk doesn't get to that to that level of, of granularity, at least in a defensible way. Yeah. I mean, I think the challenge, the really challenging thing that's, if you can get it is really gold is if you can find a thing that, it, that, that helps you make the decision and it, it doesn't matter almost what that thing is. So I'll give you one kind of specific example from what we do. Um, you guys all know vulnerabilities are a nightmare. There's like thousands and thousands of them. You don't know which ones to fix. And so like the prioritization of vulnerabilities has been an issue for, I don't know, thousands of years. Um, one of the things that we do is we look at of all the stuff you included in your application, like artifact, which pieces actually appear when you run the application, like which pieces have you actually called and talked to, right? So if the vulnerability is in one of the pieces you've talked to, that matters. And if it's not, that matters a lot less, right? And so immediately, like the engineers in the audience are like, oh my God, but I can think of 37 exceptions for why that wouldn't work, right? And you're right, there probably are like a thousand edge cases, but who cares? Like for 99% of use cases, having this number like saves 95% of time of remediating things that don't matter, right? And so when we shipped this thing last year, people were just elated. They were like, oh my God, I love you. Like, thank you. <laughs> I have a thing I can act on. I can report that to my boss. Like, I'm just so happy. And I'm sitting here thinking, we have done so many more sophisticated, interesting, amazing things as a company. And like, this is the one that mattered because it got them the th the, the actionable number they could report on and, and, and do something with, right? So yeah, if you can find those kinds of things, um, they usually aren't the super precise, super like complex technically things. They're kind of like, a little obvious in some cases. Right. Yeah. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to make one, one last reference. So I think you, you essentially hit on a MacGuffin for cybersecurity professionals, right? So for those of you out there that do not know what a MacGuffin is, look it up. I'm not going to tell you it is actually perfectly relevant because the concept was actually created by Mr. Alfred Hitchcock. And, and I think you, you sort of made that right. So Find a thing that drives a decision. The actual thing itself doesn't matter. It's about the decision driving. So I think that's a great sort of thing to, to close on. So, all right. So let me, I'm going to sum up a couple of things, then I'll hand it over to you for any last minute thoughts. So um, Anna does not believe in FMC, which stands for fluffy management crap. And, and by the way, that phrase was actually coined by my cousin, uh, Vic Wheatman, who was, who actually created the, the security team at, uh, at Gartner before I got there. Uh, and the funny thing is he used it as an insult, but the team actually wore it as a badge of honor. Um, asking why is super, super important. Why do you want to do this? Why do you want to look at this? Why do you want to see this? Um, building and, and grading and creating um, cross-functional value discussions by swapping personas or sharing perspective, I think is really, really useful. Um, and then find a thing that drives a decision. And, and I think those are great. Oh, and then one more. Um, we know you add value, but how do we communicate that value add to an audience that does not necessarily have your, your background? Uh, so this was, this was awesome, Anna. I'm, I'm, I know we talked earlier on, uh, about getting you on and you were like, well, what am I going to share? This was a great, great episode. There was a lot of, of real good actionable advice. So any final closing thoughts for our listeners before we wrap up? Apparently I'm not too bad at the FMC thing myself and Jeff. <laughs> Absolutely. You are not. <laughs> uh, no, this has been awesome. Uh, I think your summary is really great. Um, I just want to say, keep on keeping on. It is like an awesome time to be in cybersecurity. 
we are certainly going through some things, some things as an industry, but like one day you'll look back on this and be like, I shaped that industry. And that's pretty cool. Yes. Well, that is a great close. So uh, again, our guest today was uh, Anna Bellock, uh, who I am proud to call friend. Um, please, everyone, subscribe below. Want to make sure that you don't miss any of our future guests. We have some great guests coming up as well. But with that, I want to thank everyone for joining us on today's episode of Risk and Reels with Anna Bellock. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay secure. Wheatman out. Thank you for listening to Risk and Reels, a cybersecurity podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to riveting 30-minute conversation about movies and cybersecurity. Jeffrey will be on the road this year at some of the industry's biggest events, but you can always find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Jeffrey Wheatman. This podcast is powered by Blackkite, the only security rating service to deliver the highest quality intelligence to help organizations make better risk decisions.